I, I've, I've never attempted the novel. I did read the Children's Illustrated Classics <laughs> version, and I, you know what? I enjoyed that one. I thought that one was fun. Hi, and welcome to the episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this month, we have been discussing the ever-popular heist genre so thomas what have we talked about when talking about the heist genre this month well you know i've i've i've, I've been away from the show <laughs> a couple episodes it's, it's yeah it's been two episodes and it's been a little bit of a break with everything it's been yeah. like two or three weeks since we recorded it feels like <laughs> yeah but you know this this is one of those months where i feel like it's the the genre is coming out as a lot more varied than i expected you know, we, we 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 talked a little bit in the early, although we never, I feel like we never really had a, a caper uh, this month necessarily. We've kind of gone a little bit more on the like darker side. No, yeah, out of sight is probably the one that's the closest yeah. to it, is I, th- I think. But yeah, but you know, there's there's kind of there's on the two ends of the spectrum. You've got the like Danny Ocean, like everything falls into place, uh, where you're just kind of watching this crazy plan get pulled off. Yeah, and the then sti- on the, the other sting, end, like Robert yeah. Redford movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Love the Sting. I know yeah. it's not considered as 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 much of a classic, but yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, and then on the other end, you've got the like everything kind of falls apart, and usually those tend to be a little bit darker. And yeah. and so we we you know we did Inside Man, which was kind of in the middle. It was a little dark. It had some things yeah. to say, definitely. But you still ultimately got to watch kind of a cool plan go down and watch some banter. Yeah between the 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 cops and the and the robbers Mm -hmm. so that that was kind of a little taste of of the middle ground but um you you can have these ones that are that are kind of like the more realistic take on what bank robbing uh entails and and then you've got kind of in the middle you've got kind of the the french influence that's that's much more about tension and 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 building the 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 stakes you know, I, I feel like the the new Ocean's Eleven is not that stake heavy. You're, you're just there for the ride. Yeah, and and like with a lot of these too, it's like I, I was I talked with Hunter a little bit briefly of like how like with heist being around for so long, in a way you could argue that it's it's a the heist genre is a branch off of like the western in a way like the outlaw movies mm. or whatever yeah of how like because you think of like old westerns it's like they're bank robbers or whatever and mm. it's kind of spurred off of that going from great train robbery onward i mean butch casting the sundance kid is an example uh and some of these early kind of uh, uh outlaw movies um but one thing i know we did discuss too when talking about kind of the the genre as a whole of like the idea of like the relationship between law enforcement and the criminal world and how mm-hmm. there is this like respect, the respect between mutual respect between them. And yeah. we, we kind of talked about that in our site and it's, and it's, it was kind of there in inside me as well. I mean, it's kind of this like Washington and Owen are very like, Oh yeah, I get you. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that, that ring at the end. It's, it's not yeah. just a, he gives him the, the, the ring as in, you know, fine find out who the real criminal is in this case but then he also gives them the hey go propose to your girlfriend ring yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's like, a little that's a little sign of friendship there yeah but it has been it has been fairly varied but it, it is it's the weird connections that kind of come into play if it's certain people that kind of connect and there'll be a kind of a brief connection today with some of the previous stuff we've talked about 
or how I think a lot of heist movies build on top of one another in some way. Mm. I talked, I, I, we post this on, on social of like American animals and how they reference all these different heist films. And Hunter brought up how the town references both uh, heat and friends of Eddie Coyle. Um, mm. And how even I think in some of these, you'll see people kind of referencing other films within the genre. Yeah. Well, and when, when you brought up, you know, the American West, it's, there is this kind of mythos of, of the robber going back to, to, mm-hmm. to Robin Hood, the, yeah. the idea of this kind of noble bandit hero. And, and I think banks are definitely a target that this will be brought up several times in our movies today that, yeah. you know, the idea of like, if I'm robbing a bank, I'm not hurting anybody, but, but the bank, but yeah. like big business. Yeah. But I think the kind of the dividing line you can really draw in these ones that we've been watching are, does it, romanticize this mythos does it build up the mythos of the bandit or does it try to dismantle it mm-hmm. and and something like you said american animals is is a really interesting one because it's about how romanticized that image is yeah and showing you how how you know it's these teenage boys thinking like oh this is going to be so cool we're going to do it just like the movies and then the rest of the movie is about tearing down yeah that that legend and showing how you know, even something that you think is going to be victimless is still not victimless. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's the kind of dividing line there is, is whether or not it, it builds up the mythos or tears it down. And yeah. and so that's why Michael Mann is going to be a really interesting filmmaker to talk about because he kind of does it's both. both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's who we're talking about today, by the way, we're talking about Michael Mann and Michael Mann's one too. I think, Honestly, we, we could have probably done a full month on Michael Mann, but we've already, co- we already covered Collateral. Uh, I think going into it, I forgot how long Michael Mann's movies were. Um, yeah. So it's going to be a, a trek. I was able to watch, I'll say Thomas has been a little bit more busier than I have at the, at the past week or so. So I've been able to watch a little bit more than Thomas. Um, I, hit, I hit the bank robbery one. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm, but, so, but, so, you know, Last of the Mohicans is somewhere back in my brain. I've seen it, but yeah, it's, I can talk I'm about not going to pull exact camera shots yeah. out, of, for example. But, but I, I can, after going a full man deep dive, even I even watched the first episode of Tokyo Vice today, <laughs> uh, uh, Bria, so I can go as much in depth on Michael Mann. So we're talking about Michael Mann today. And so when you think of Michael Mann, Thomas, what do you think of? Like what comes to mind? I think of kind of that late 80s, early 90s aesthetic mm-hmm. that he's part of. I, Michael Mann and De Palmer are kind of like weirdly tied together in my brain from that like, <laughs> you know, like Manhunter they're, era. They're, yeah, they're neo-noir kind of movies in a way, yeah. a lot of them. And they're kind of pulpy, but like elevated pulp. Um, But yeah, Manhunter and Heat, or uh, Heat is mainly, when you yeah, say yeah. Michael Mann, I think of Heat. Uh, we we can talk about today whether or not he's been chasing the the high of heat for the rest of his career since it came <laughs> out. But um, I, I definitely think he is one filmmaker where you can you can go back and say that's that's the Michael Mann movie. Yeah, and and Heat is definitely that that's the movie. Uh, I, not to tip my hand very early, but I think that's his best film. Like I just think that is. I think it's his most epic. I think it's the one because Michael Mann, the big thing I want to establish too is like Michael Mann is a is a director who loves working on such a large canvas. Mm-hmm. And like weirdly, when watching Last of the Mohicans this time, I was reminded kind of a Peter Weir a little bit. 
with, mm. with that movie because Peter Weir, like Michael Mann, are, are they're two directors who love working with a big canvas yeah. and usually telling a story of one man or two men or whatever and kind of the changes over time for them. But they could be a big, but like, it's a big story. But what makes that big story is this intimate look at this specific person. Mm. If it's Jeff Bridges and Breathless, not, not Breathless, that's comes up later, and Fearless, uh, Jeff Bridges and Fearless, um, or uh, Truman and the Truman Show. Um, yeah. And this is that way, I think, with a lot of Mann's movies. And I think, like, like Peter Weir, Michael Mann, their movies in current modern day form is that no studio really is going to pay Peter Weir and Michael Mann $100 million to go make an original movie. Mm-hmm. basically like that's what like when you look at all of his late like his last kind of hat like heat onward it's like they're 100 million dollar movies mm-hmm. when like nowadays literally i think one of my biggest things when i look at like, a lot of michael Mann movies is that would be like this would be a tv show nowadays yeah if you look at heat if you look at public enemies if you look at the insider if you look at manhunter if you look at thief like they would all be tv shows miami vice was a tv show like they'd all be tv shows nowadays like collateral might be the only one that's not mm-hmm. everything else would be almost um so his movies are such this large canvas and i think the reoccurring thing that i would say now that will come back up in all his movies that his movies are about always men i'll say that out the gate it's always men who are like experts in their fields and it's about their like dedication to their jobs that usually results in like a strained or complicated personal life for them like mm. all of his films from Thief to even Ali, it's men who are obsessed with the work and the professionalism of what they do and everything else kind of falls by the wayside. That's almost present in all of them. And so in a lot of these films, you will see the main characters have to lose that personal life by the end of the movie mm-hmm. is what's going to happen. Um, again, and also a lot of his films are crime films. Uh, and I, and I said, most of his best ones showcase the characters more than the crime. Like I, when you look at kind of thief and heat, I think two of the best scenes that we'll talk about in both those movies and some of the best of his career are just two people talking in a diner is <laughs> the, the thing. Um, so he, he, he really can get those intimate moments. Well, and when he doesn't do that in certain films, which we'll talk about later, that's when they don't work as well. Mm-hmm. Do you know a lot about Michael Mann coming into this? I do not. I do not. I, um, you know, he's, he's, I haven't kept up with, you know, I, I didn't see black hat. I, I saw public enemies in theaters. I so did. did I. So did I. Um, and you know, I, I like some of his movies. He's not a director. I consider like, you know, we, we have some friends. I, I know a lot of people who are obsessed with heat. Yeah. Um, we have some some friends who are and it's the kind of thing that's like oh if michael mann's doing it i'm seeing it yeah and and you know he's 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 still in the conversation there's within the last couple of years there's been like the revisitation of miami vice there's been this like resurgence of heat they the podcast the rewatchables has now done three episodes just on on one one, and one with michael mann i believe if i'm not mistaken (laughs) um so so he's definitely somebody who's still very much in the conversation even up to his hbo show that just came out but he's he's not he's not an end-all be-all for me and so that um, um, it's been interesting to dive back into him 
you know he's kind of a, a movie by movie guy in my book see interesting okay see i guess may because i watched this was i i i began to love him a lot more in this dive for me mm-hmm. um and we'll go into it more but i began to see more kind of threats i had never seen the insider before this episode i went and kind of watched the insider for the first time uh, i never seen ali i never seen black hat never seen the keep which was a brief is it is like a a kind of a footnote in his career, which we'll talk about briefly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I began to kind of fall in love with this stuff a lot more and seeing how, and then they even watch Tokyo Vice is that like his movies don't get made nowadays is kind of the thing. Yeah. And so with the possibility of a new Michael Mann film coming out, which is apparently prepping right now, it is somewhat exciting to see if he still has that, that fastball, I guess. For a man who's seventy nine years old, we talk about Adrian, Adrian Line uh, with with Deep Water or whatever. Like, I wonder if he still can do something on such a large scale, and and we'll see how that goes. But let's dive into kind of his early life, my, the early life of Michael Mann. All right. So Michael Kenneth Mann was born on February fifth, nineteen forty three, in Chicago, Illinois, to Esther and Jack Mann, and grew up in the neighborhood of hum- Humboldt Park. Apologize if that's pronounced wrong. Uh, Humboldt Park, uh, his family was Jewish and his parents were grocers in town. Uh, Jackman was a World War II veteran and Michael's grandfather, Sam, was a World War I veteran who had immigrated to the U.S. from Russia. Uh, Mann was close to both his father and grandfather, telling LA Weekly in 2006 that both men influenced the way I think about things. They both had dramatic lives. During his teenage years, Mann grew up in the growing blues scene of Chicago, falling in love with the music of that era, at that time, Jack and Esther worked hard as grocers uh, so they could send Michael to college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. There he majored in English literature, but he was fond of history, philosophy, and architecture. Hmm. While in school, he began taking a few film history and theory courses. It's actually the first film courses that University of Wisconsin and Michigan or University of Wisconsin and Madison were, had ever offered, apparently. Um, but the film that he, but it was a film that he saw during its initial run that would greatly influence his decision to make filmmaking his career, and that was Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strange Love. Oh, um, another Kubrick reference for this month. Mm-hmm. Um, before becoming interested in filmmaking, Mann planned on having an academic career, like an academic kind of a career in academia, basically, and that yeah. would soon change. Um, when talking about Kubrick's film, Mann said, it said to my whole generation of filmmakers that you can make an individual statement of high integrity and have that film be successfully seen by a mass audience all at the same time. In other words, you didn't have to make, you didn't have to be making seven brides for seven brothers if you wanted to be part of the commercial film industry or be reduced to niche filmmaking if you wanted to be, a seri- be serious about cinema. So that's what Kubrick meant. Um, after graduating from college during the tumultuous 1960s, Mann was not drafted by the United States to the Vietnam War due to asthma. Instead, he would go off to London to study film at the London Film School, where he says he made very pretentious student films. Oh, who didn't? Yeah, and while they, they yeah, and, and while there, his filmmaking peers were the London group of Adrian Lyne, Ridley and Tony Scott, and Alan Parker. Oh, wow! So he, he was in this group, which. It's honestly a little shocking that this group isn't talked about Mm -hmm. as much, apparently, for such people who we're discussing. Uh, And like them, Mann would also start off by making commercials in England. 
Uh, he also began making short films, one of which was an NBC documentary about the Paris riots in May 1968. Uh, one of the shorts, Jean, Jean Puri, would win a jury prize at the 1971 Cannes Film Festival. After six years of being in London, Mann would move to Los Angeles to pursue a career in filmmaking. He first made a road trip documentary called 17 Days Down the Line before receiving lessons on television writing from Hawaii Five-0 writer Robert Lewin. Mann would begin writing for television shows like Starsky and Hutch and Police Story, writing a total, epi- total of four episodes for, for both shows each. Um, on Police Story, Mann worked with Joseph Wamba, who was the creator of the show and former police officer. Some say this is where Mann learned how, how important details were to the storytelling, because that's one of, I think, his big attributes is his kind of obsession with details in all of his filmmaking. Um, soon mm-hmm. after, he created a television show for Aaron Spelling called Vegas, which ran for three seasons. In 1979, he would direct his first feature-length film, The Jericho Mile, which was shown on ABC in the United States. Uh, but because Mann shot the movie on film, it was actually shown theatrically in Europe, uh, very similar to Spielberg's Duel, I guess you could say, which is also, mm-hmm. I think, an ABC movie. Uh, Jericho Mile is about a prisoner who gets to try out for the Olympic team. And I think running is what it is. Um, the Jericho Mile was well-received, and it seems this created buzz for Michael Mann, which led him to directing his first theatrical film in the U.S., which was Thief in 1981. So, Thomas, what is Thief about? Uh, Thief is about a man who, by day, is a car salesman, yeah. but by night is actually a, a master safecracker, uh, cat burglar kind of. Yeah. You know, not not a not a heist man, but a but a go in in the night and disarm the alarms and yeah. and make out while nobody knows you were there. Yeah, and it's about him kind of trying to have it all. He literally he has a a picture he keeps in his wallet of the life that he wants to lead, and and he's trying to make it happen with a family and a and a burgling career. And and you, we learn that when you're when you're a cat burglar you can't when you're a thief you can't have it all nope that you can't it's funny you bring up the picture because i i noticed that like that happens actually in collateral as well where jamie fox is a picture he keeps uh in his tax that he always looks at of like hmm. his kind of dream thing so that's a reoccurring thing in in man's films uh yeah so so yeah it so is this movie a heist movie thomas i mean i, I guess you know it, it depends on what the definition it's not a, it's definitely not a bank robbing movie because we're, we're, we're going to cover some bank robbing yeah. movies later in this episode but if if you're just considering heist like the the, the planning and execution of a, of a robbery yeah. or a burglary i i think so like there's yeah. there's a big job yeah that he's building up to that is that is very difficult and, and no one can yeah. do it except for him like that that's all the makings of a heist movie yeah and it's his one last job that's the thing. It's like his one last job. He's going to do it. Yeah, and, yeah. One last job. And then I'm out. And, and, and I'm my out. crew, I love my crew. I'm bringing my crew in for one last one. And, and then we're, and this is the, this is the, this is the job you can go off on. That's, that's yeah. again, a reoccurring thing in not just heist movies, but you'll see in every one of man's heist movies yes. is the, like, this is the job you go out on. And mm-hmm. usually that job is the unraveling of our main character in these films or one of our main characters in all, in all of the three films we'll talk about that are, they're kind of heist movies. Yeah. yeah. I would say this is very much in line with like Rafifi 
like the more French kind of films where Definitely. like it's like the whole opening is like this like almost no, no dialogue uh, save cracking scene with James Caan. Yeah, yeah, um, and, the, and the the big ultimate safe cracking I noticed is done with like no music, and yeah. it's, it's very, yeah, it's very fascinated with like the details yeah. of how to actually break into a safe, which has is very very riffy. Yeah, it's very meticulous. The one shot I think it's in the opening. That one shot in the like where the camera goes into the lock of the safe or whatever. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? I just don't know how they do in 1981. Like it's yeah. like, it's like he, he, man is always kind of ahead of the curve. It feels like for better or worse with technology. Um, and I don't know what they used for that, but he's, but you start to see a lot of those cinematic trademarks in thief. I mean, I honestly think thief is one of the best American directorial debuts of all time for me it's definitely it's definitely all there it is <laughs> it is like like fully formed yeah michael mann it's the it's the beginning of like the portrait of a portrait of a man who's this like uh uh this professional at what he does it's like it's like when you look like like, the, like james con and like de niro and heat do not like people who are unprofessional no. and who go against like their word or something mm-hmm. Like that's a, I think, and Public Enemies is the same way because like Dillinger, Depp as Dillinger does not really like Babyface Nelson because he's this this loose cannon, mm-hmm. and that's all present kind of in here. And like, and with this one, it's a little different. It's like it's like Khan does not like being controlled by someone else, which is Robert uh, Prosky, uh, who it's his acting debut at like fifty one yeah. in this movie, which is fantastic. Insane. He's amazing. Uh, Jim Belushi's debut as well. Mm. in this movie <laughs> not not gonna throw fantastic his way for this one i but, will throw know. fantastic well it was, it, i think it was it was it was belushi's debut prosky's debut uh i think it's dennis farina's debut as well in this movie it's uh william peterson's debut as a bartender very briefly if you see him i don't even think i saw him yeah it's very briefly if you, it's he has long hair and a beard but it's when when James Conn goes up to Tuesday well Jesse the girl he the woman he's trying to oh, to yeah, take yeah. out and and the bartender tries to kick him out that's William Peterson okay. and he's just like get off me man yeah. um but uh but yeah so this this movie it was based on a 1975 book called The Home Invaders Confessions of a Cat Burglar uh man was inspired to write thief based on his experience making the Jericho Mile because they actually shot portions of the film in Folsom prison. Um, man says that experience helped him imagine what Frank's life was like in prison before the events of the film. Uh, so Thomas, what, what are like some favorite scenes you have in this movie? I, 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 like you said, like the dialogue scenes in this movie are, are what kind of make it. And yeah. um, I, I love when he goes to visit Willie Nelson in prison. <laughs> It's a very like intimate scene. Like they're like yeah. right, they're like right there next to each other. Like Willie Nelson, just you know, it's not a fantastic performance, but it's yeah. it's very earnest. Yeah, and and Willie Nelson just looks so happy to see him. <laughs> he's like smiling he's like, the whole time hey. he's talking. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> but yeah, there's so so many other just kind of like sitting and talking and, and scenes in this uh, like uh, the, the the whole subplot about him wanting to adopt because he was yeah. adopted is. Yeah is or like or because he wasn't adopted really Mm -hmm. um is great and then you know when he and prosky 
like that's that's what ultimately like he's just like i'm not getting tied in with the mafia and then prosky's like i can i can get you a kid and that's like that's what what draws him in too far and kind of his down it's his downfall really it's Mm -hmm. it's it's that the dream of his is what his downfall is is that he does it and then is now forever tied to these characters and it's the same when he when the heist goes right this is what happens in a lot of heist movies again talking about rafifi or asphalt jungle uh or even the killing good fellas it's like the heist goes right and it's the aftermath where everyone's kind of own errors is what gets them mm-hmm. ca- or this when everything unfolds ba- or unravels basically and if if robert prosky just like gives khan all of his money and doesn't put the money in these other business ventures uh khan would just walk away and the movie be over with mm-hmm. but prosky is so hell-bent i'm like no, no no i'm gonna keep you around like forever basically literally everyone else in his pocket he wants him in his pocket as well because he's good at what he does and that's the thing is that it's almost like the the downfalls i mean a lot of downfalls these characters but like it's because they're so good at what they do um a lot of times uh it is a um it's a great kind of bait and switch in this movie where you know the cops are breathing down his back and you're like wow like being associated with the mafia is what's gonna get the heat on this guy you know he's he's stayed out of the limelight and then it and then it kind of turns out that the the real heat is the mafia. Yeah, and I literally right. It's like right when he gets involved with them, it's like that's when the cops show up, and it's just yeah. like. And again, this is kind of a re, again the, the kind of thing that keeps popping up, especially his crime movies, is that these are characters. These main characters. These main characters are people who can pack up and leave within a moment's notice. Like yeah. De Niro. De Niro really emphasizes that in Heat, but it's thirty it's here. seconds. Yeah, 30 seconds and I can leave, basically. It's like 30 seconds when the heat's on, I can get up and leave. No strings attached. I'm gone. I have to be able to leave whatever I have behind. And Khan is very much like this in Thief as well. He talks about when the heat's on, like the heat's on me right now. I got to lay low. And then when push comes to shove, I won't say, a little bit of spoiler, but he has to give up on things mm-hmm. in order to save everyone and himself, essentially. Um, and so, yeah, I, but I think I think one of the best scenes in this movie as i said earlier and why i think one of the best scenes in michael mann's career and it's the best scene apparent or it's the scene that james Conn is most proud of his entire career uh which is saying something is the diner scene between him and tuesday weld like it's a very vulnerable intimate scene that goes for like eight minutes very simple simply directed scene mm-hmm. that lays out this entire character pretty early on in the film is that and as someone said in one of the articles I read, it's like Frank's goals are achievable. That's the crazy part. They're not like, they're not over, like he's not overreaching getting a house, a family and like his best friend or whatever. That's all he wants. And that's mm-hmm. happiness. That's him going away. And I'm going to have this for the rest of my life. And everything just gets screwed up because of everything, because of how deep he gets. Yeah. Um, but the big thing in this film that really kind of helps establish too with man is again that meticulous detail with everything. So a lot of the a lot of the the stuff they're doing in terms of drilling the safe and all that is these were not props; these are real tools the actors were trained to use, um, and they had real life thieves who served as technical technicians on the actual actual film. 
And that became kind of a reoccurring theme in all of his movies is that he had these big consultants on each film. Man, it's more, it'll be more prominent later, but like he shoots in the real sets of the places he's portraying. This is really mm-hmm. set in Chicago. Um, but yeah, it's all very, very detailed, very um, uh, realistic. And that's when that, that man will stress for his entire career. Um, few pieces of trivia. So Al Pacino turned down the role apparently due to scheduling conflicts uh also uh john belushi visited the set a lot um and the cast would all cast and crew would often hang out at belushi's speakeasy called the blues brother bar after work Mm. is what it was beautiful it's a beautifully shot film Mm -hmm. it's it's you know this is an interesting movie in like its time period it feels feels like one of those movies that's bridging the gap between 70s and 80s filmmaking It's got a lot of that kind of 70s, like, like conversation like that, the, like those kind of vibes. It's like, yes, this is meant to be a thriller, but we're also just going to sit here and, and talk. But then like the the finale of this movie is so 80s and you've got Tangerine Dream like yep. kicking in, running around, having a shootout. It's it's really feels like that kind of change from those like 70s character studies that yes. were being made um into the kind of like 80s action thrillers but i will say this i just read that it was nominated i believe for worst musical score at the razzies the year it came out <laughs> wow razzies they were not ready for for synth scores yet. <laughs> synth scores yeah howard faltermeyer hadn't hadn't shown Kept up on the scene yet. yeah a few more years left at that very much at the time but I, as you said it bridges the gap and i think I, a friend of mine said like it's kind of defining moment of the 80s i don't know i yes you do you do you don't know you don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed go home or get busted look i have run out of time i have lost it all and so i can't i can't work fast enough to catch up and i can't run fast enough to catch up and the only thing that catches me up is doing my magic act but it ends you know it will end when i got this right there it ends it's over so i'm just asking you to be with me the movie originally titled violent streets is violent streets better than thief or is thief better than violent streets for a title violent streets yeah it does not seem to fit this that seems more like a 70s like like grindhouse movie violent yeah. streets coming to cinemas uh it was shown at 34th uh can film festival and it was released in the u.s theatrically on march 27th 1981 the film would be a critical success with roger ebert saying michael mann's thief is a film of style substance and violently felt emotion all wrapped up in one of the most intelligent thrillers i've seen the film being a modest success at the box office grossing 11.5 million off a $5.5 million budget. But yeah, I still believe, as I said earlier, I think it's one of the best American debuts of any filmmaker with just kind of the perfect blend of everything where this director is fully fully established right out of the gate and it's somewhat mm-hmm. shocking. And then he does yeah. something that is the exact opposite. And that's a movie <laughs> called The Keep. So after the success of Thief, uh, Mann began working on several projects, one of them being the American remake of Breathless, starring Richard Gere, 
which I actually really like Breathless, by the way. I'll go on the limb and say that. Um, really stylish film, and it would be intriguing to see what Mann would have done with it. Uh, but he would drop out of that project to make The Keep, a British horror film about Nazi troops in World War II who awaken a supernatural evil when they set up camp in an ancient stone fortress in Romania. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> Nazi troops in World War II who awaken a supernatural evil when they set up camp in an ancient stone fortress in Romania. They invade Romania, and this is like this like very ominous again stone fortress that no one stays in overnight. And these Nazi troops stay there. Uh, Gabriel Burns in it as the evil Nazi soldier. Evil Nazi. Not, there's also a good Nazi uh, captain in it. <laughs> You know, you know what this weirdly reminds me of. You know that horror movie we watched about the 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 Confederates staying at that like haunted. Oh 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 oh! oh. <laughs> dead dead birds is it dead birds? Dead birds, yeah. Dead birds, yeah. So yeah. also a bank robbery in that movie. All so bank robbery. Yeah, there you go. Um. So uh, yeah. Gabriel Gabriel uh Byrne stars as one of the characters. Robert Prosky also in the movie, Falling Up Thief. Mm. I can't always pronounce his name wrong. The care, the lead actor in Das Boot, Jurgen Pachnu. I just I use Wikipedia oh, sure. pronunciation for that. He was in Das Boot. He was in Da Vinci Code, uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two, Air Force One, a lot of different movies. Um, German actor, but also Scott Glenn is also in the movie as mm. like a. I, I don't really know. I don't. I, I don't picture I, Scott Glenn doing a German accent very. He's not well, doing a sorry. German accent. I don't think, but like basically, I think it's like he's like a keeper. The, the, the keep is what the fortress is called and he's kind of like a protector of the keep to make sure no one messes with the 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 magic and supernatural elements of the keep is what it is so uh ian mckellen also in the movie it's a very okay. odd film so i'll, I'll yes. let me tell you why this is so odd um so yeah it's a complete left turn for man uh but it would be the first time where man's ambition would not match up with the wants of the studio uh, the initial production would last 13 weeks, but due to the troubled production the production had and conflicts between the major parties, uh, reshoots were scheduled that extended the shoot to 22 weeks. Wow. So an additional nine weeks were added. Uh, oh there were God. several different endings shot for the film, and because the film lasted so long, several crew members moved on to other projects during it, including the film's cinematographer, I believe, as well. Mann would initially make a cut of the film that clocked in at three and a half hours long. Of course he did. <laughs> but Paramount wanted the movie to be two hours long. Uh, test screenings for the two-hour cut were not positive, so Paramount decided it would be better if it was cut even shorter, uh, making the movie at a, the final tally being 96 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> These last-minute cuts resulting in many plot holes, continuity mistakes, uh, very obvious jumps in soundtrack and scenes, and bad editing issues. Uh, even the sound mixing in the movie was not finished properly because of Paramount's interference, which is why every version of this movie suffers from the bad sound design. Uh, when the film was released in December 1983, it would be a critical and box office failure, grossing only $4.2 million on a $6 million budget. Mann initially disowned the film because of the studio's interference, but he would later praise the production design and other elements of the film. And he's right, the production design of the movie is actually really good for what it's trying to accomplish, but it's very 80s in a bad way, like 80s horror in a bad way. Uh, many people have held out hope for a longer cut 
uh, of the film since Mann is notorious for making several cuts of his films. Mm-hmm. But in 2016, Mann said that it would not be possible because they were not able to put all the pieces back together. Wow. So yeah, the keep is uh, it, it's his it's his biggest um it's his biggest uh uh I guess it's the, it's the biggest out the biggest outlier of his move of his filmography and it's the outlier that's not good. There's one more kind of outlier I think in his filmography that we'll talk about in a, in a minute. <laughs> but I think it's a better version. I think it's a it's a great film. Uh this one is one that I think it's just you could slap on another director and you'd be like, yeah, it makes sense. But with man, it just feels so out of the ordinary for him. Him, And he would never make a movie like this. So after the failure of The Keep, uh, man's next project would be, would be Return to Television. While man would only co-write one episode, the show that he would help make would be Miami Vice. And Miami Vice would become this uh, big cultural touchdown of the 1980s running for five seasons. Man heavily influenced the creative aspect, leading the score, costumes, and cinematography. Even though he never directed an episode, apparently, uh, he just co-wrote one episode in like season three or four, oh, wow. which is somewhat surprising for someone that's become so synonymous with the show. Um, Man would then follow up Miami Vice with another television series he executive produced called Crime Star- Story. Crime Story, oh, yeah. starring fr- frequent collaborator uh, of Man Dennis Farina. Uh, the show would only run for two seasons would have a la- lasting impact on television with some critics calling it ahead of its time and one of the most underrated shows of the decade. The reason why it was loved and hated at the time was because of its serialized nature, choosing to tell a single story over an entire season. And people were like, no, we want episodic. Don't yeah. do this. That's one of those things when you start diving into prestige TV, it's always like everyone's like, yeah, the, the Wire. The Wire really invented prestige TV. And then somebody will be like, well, you know, the the wire was really NYPD Blue. It was like a <laughs> continuation of NYPD Blue, and then somebody would be like, "Yeah, but NYPD Blue is just crime story." Like yeah, it always story. comes back or to like that Homicide one. Life on the Street or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, Homicide Life on yeah. the Streets. That one's always in the conversation too. And you're just like, oh yeah, it's like so. It's like it's like I, when you look at that, yeah, Prestige TV. It's like someone's like, oh, it's when Sopranos happens, and that's like, oh no, it's when this happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, guys, Prestige TV that we're calling like the Golden Age of TV did not start in the 70s like so we can't yeah, go, drag we, net, we can't like, reach them. <laughs> we gotta pick a point we gotta create different eras it's like like i don't think we're current side story side sidebar i don't think we're currently in what we used to know as the golden age of tv i think we're in a mm-hmm. different period because of streaming yeah like we still have prestige movie or shows but it's not the 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 peak TV that was called right from like we have too many prestige shows. Have to, exactly, so, that, so nothing can be a, a monolith anymore. In exactly, the way that, that those I, movies used to, those shows used to be. Yeah, I think we're at a point where you where you start to ask yourself. I had this conversation with a few friends uh, where it's like, at a certain point, and maybe you and I have talked about it too. It's like at a certain point there are movies you're like, oh, I wish this would be a TV show, mm-hmm. and now we're at a point where I feel like now it's like I wish this TV show was a movie instead. <laughs> Yeah. You, know, you know what i mean it's like mm-hmm. i feel like everything needs to be a tv show because it's it's about content driven uh streaming services and then having more having spend, having you spend more hours in the service and sometimes it's like the story would be better just being a two-hour movie and not a seven-hour show or six-hour show anyway enough about that um but the same year that crime story was released man would return to the big screen with the 1986 film manhunter an adaptation of thomas harris's novel red dragon and the first film appearance of the famed character hannibal lecter um 
So Thomas, have you seen this movie before? I know I, I have. have. It's it's been a while, but been I, a while. I when I first got into the Hannibal show, yes, I saw that one for the first time. I, I you know I loved the the Hannibal TV show on on NBC, and and somebody was yep. like, well, you know, that's that's an adaptation of of Manhunter, and I was like, oh, I've never even seen Manhunter, so I went back to it. Again, talking about eighties, like you said about Brian De Palma just the the art deco like neon colors of the film mm-hmm. very cool but again with this movie too you have this and i didn't know it's still this time is again you have this kid william peterson who plays william will graham who's an fbi agent and then you have um uh tom noonan who plays uh the tooth fairy is what the the the, the name they give the character but he's playing uh, uh francis dollarhide they're Two, in a very similar fashion as Heat, it's like you have two characters who are like, one's a serial killer, one's this FBI agent, and they're kind of perfectly matched. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that it's not as... I think Heat is just a, an uh, amazingly balanced movie with how it balances those two characters. Manhunter, not as good at that. Can't, can't have a lot of sympathy for a serial killer. Yeah, you can't, you can't. And like especially how like disturbing... He is the person. But what I mean is like you have like Will Graham for a long period of time. And then Graham at the hour mark kind of takes a back seat for a while. And it's just dollar hide. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be a little bit more of like a cat and mouse game. There is a cat and mouse game, but it's not as much ping ponging back and forth throughout the movie. It kind mm-hmm. of becomes that later. But you're seeing these two very professional people and and, and their fields in a weird way um and whatever dollar Hyde does but will graham specifically and you're seeing how it takes a toll on his personal life with his family mm-hmm. and his wife and even just how he sleeps at night because he's haunted by kind of these crimes that he deals with in a very similar way that pacino will be later in heat where like he's haunted by the job at hand but he has to keep doing because there's not that much else he can do this right. is what he's good at um and that's very present in this film but no fan, a, a fantastic look brian cox excuse me, i talked about this brian cox is hannibal lecter mm-hmm. very brief but very memorable yeah. and you see you mentioned kind of hannibal and it's interesting how hannibal lecter is such a character that we've had several different portrayals of hannibal lecter and all been very unique in their own right basically yeah. mm-hmm. um so because I, I haven't seen Han- the hannibal show so <sighs> so good so, like, what what do you think the three the differences are between these three characters, if you or three performances, if you can say? Um, I mean, I think we're, they're all kind of presented at at different periods, you know, in in yes. his life, you know, with 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 Hopkins. It's been a while since he's been like captured, and and yeah. he's kind of this this legend. And I can't how how with in in Manhunter, it's he's he's been exposed already. You mean Hannibal Lecter? Yeah, Hamlet. Hamlet in prison because because Will Graham, William Peterson's yeah. character, has caught him. Is what right. it is. But, um, but but fairly recently, right? It's it's not like he's kind of with yeah within the, within a past year or two. Yeah. it feels pretty pretty recent. Yeah, and then and then in in Hannibal, the the television show that that focuses on his and Will's relationship when Hannibal was still a consultant for the FBI. Yeah, and and was not known to be a serial killer slash cannibal yet so so mads mickelson plays him as a much more refined 
you know, some somebody who has a secret but is very, very good at keeping it under wraps. And that's that's a really interesting uh, take on the character be- because I feel like Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins are both playing him as someone who you would initially approach as a monster and then you're kind of taken aback by yeah. the humanity. Yeah. Whereas Mad Mick- Mads Mikkelsen is playing it kind of the opposite. It, it's someone that that a lot of people don't even realize has this absolute monster underneath. Yeah. No, so I need to watch Hamill. When casting it, um, people who are considered for the role of William Peterson's character, Will Graham, because Will, Will Graham basically is FBI agent who's kind of on leave, and because this murder, he get this murder of, or, or murder of a few women gets pulled back in by his partner, uh, Dennis Farina, who plays Jack Crawford, mm-hmm. who is also in Silence of the Lambs, who's played by Scott Glenn in Scott Silence Glenn. of the Lambs. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he brings him out. Um, and so originally, Will Graham was was the people considered for the role of Will Graham that were not William Peterson were Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, and Paul Newman. Wow. But man, it's cast Peterson after seeing footage of him in To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, by William Friedkin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Peterson spent time with officers of the Chicago Police Department researching for the role. Again, that's going to be a, a reoccurring theme with all these characters. Um, for Lecter... Uh, the ca- the actors considered for the role of Lecter, uh, John Lithgow. Okay, he would would later play a serial killer in Dexter. Uh, Manny Patinkin. Hmm. Um, Brian Dennehy, who who Brian Cox believed put him up for the role. Okay. At one point, because they were doing I think a play or something together, or they had seen each other in a play. I think Brian Cox was doing a play, and Dennehy was replacing him on the play. I think is what it was, and that's how they kind of met. And then also, uh, William Friedkin was considered for the role of Lecter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the original movie or the original, the, the book is it's based on, it was red dragon. They changed the name from red dragon to manhunter because of a fail, failed movie year of the dragon, which is by, I think produced Dino De Laurentiis starring Mickey Rourke. It didn't do well at the box office. So they changed it to a more generic title manhunter. And apparently man hated that title. Mm. Uh, Pearson has claimed in an interview that one of the film scenes uh, basically forced the crew to adopt a guerrilla filmmaking style in the movie. Uh, there's a scene in which Pearson's character, Will Graham, falls asleep while studying crime scene photographs during a flight. Um, and man wanted to shoot it on a real airplane. Um, but they were unable to gain permission to use a plane for the scene. So they booked tickets for the crew on a flight from Chicago to Florida. And once on board, the crew used their equipment, checked in as a ha- checked in as hand luggage to shoot the scene quickly, convincing the passengers and crew to let them do it by giving them Manhunter crew jackets. Is what it was. <laughs> that's uh, that's some some pre nine eleven air <laughs> travel for you. Bunch of people coordinatedly hop up and start pulling something out of their suitcases out of their yeah. overhead bins these days. Yeah, Air Marshal's going to be on you in a second. Yeah, they're basically taking a red eye from Chicago to Florida. So it was like a kind of a small, it was like not as much, it wasn't a very popular plane ride, I guess. And they were relocating down to Florida anyway. So they brought on all that stuff to shoot the scene. So yeah, there you go. Um, So when Manhunter was released, it was a box office failure. (laughs) Um, It made, reported either a $4 million or $8.6 million gain are uh, gross against a 14 or 15 million dollar budget um the critical reception would be mixed to poor with many saying it was too stylish which is funny to me 
Uh, <laughs> it is it is now gained a cult classic status because of its style, um, mm-hmm. because of its use of music, its beautiful, its striking cinematography, and it's one of the ones that I think Michael Mann is like attached to the most. It feels like it's the one. It's I think it's the first in the group of Michael Mann films that have been re- reappraised. I think yeah. Manhunter is the first one, and then yeah, everything else. I, is I followed. feel like it's kind of constantly in the zeitgeist. There's you know Brian Cox is kind of. Not that Brian Cox was ever not famous, but the kind of a lot of people rediscovering him through succession. Yeah, there's a weird specifically here in Atlanta. There's this weird culture that was one of the first movies to really kind of like shoot in Atlanta and like feature Atlanta locations. So, yeah, I I constantly hear people talking about Manhunter. I, I think the Criterion Channel just put out like some of their most popular movies that they've streamed in the past two years since they put the site up and manhunter was in like the top 40 yeah it has a following it's it's one of his his more beloved films on Brock's crowd as well so i think it continues to grow man's always been pretty good at using music and he's used it with score and thief um but in this one he actually uses a pop song with the uh, inagata devita by iron butterfly for the big kind of climax of the film that is going to be like him using music is going to be a big key component of a lot of his films score Mm -hmm. or pop music so after manhunter man would have one of the biggest gaps of his career not directing a film for i believe six years is what it was um and that film the next film he would make would be last the mohicans um it would be an adaptation of a novel that was released in 1826 yep uh man wanted to make the film because he saw the 1936 film version of the movie at a young age and it stuck with him that's why apparently man's version is more of an adaptation of that film than the original novel because i'll be real i hate the original novel i I hate that novel i've I've never attempted the novel i did read the children's illustrated classics (laughs) version and i you know what i enjoyed that one i thought that one was fun It was when we had to read, I think, in Alabama. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love the movie. I'm excited to read this book. And I feel like everyone that lives in the movie dies in the book, it feels like. It's like very, like, the like basically certain characters that, that, that die in, in this movie are the ones that live at the end, essentially. I do, I do remember the first time I saw this movie, my, my mom let me rent it after I read the children's illustrated <laughs> classics version. And that, that was one of my first introductions to being like, what the heck is this? You, you're allowed to change the book that much? That, yeah. That's legal? <laughs> <laughs> that's legal. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, because I, I will say one of, the char- it's, it's the, one of the characters, one of the sisters who lives who dies in this movie lives in the book and the other one it's basically that they reverse because mm. i remember we discussed this in the class and it was like oh it's because like this was the more angelic one and she that was the way that was like society needed to be built around her and the and the captain or whatever of the army and they have like no real arcs to me in the book mm-hmm. it was just they're like this is what society should be like and in this movie man actually gives all those characters arcs and kind of gives them um gives character closure in some way Mm -hmm. um but what i love about this movie that is so different because this is the other outlier i think in michael mann's career what's so different it's the one that like you don't really have the character the main character whose obsession with the professionalism or whatever because hawkeye uh danny lewis's character basically premise the, the, the the plot of the movie i'm just jumping around i apologize um 
but it's about like the the French Indian War, it's epic historical drama, and Danny Lewis plays a Native American, or well, he plays a European who's been adopted by Native Americans. His name's Hawk, Hawkeye, and mm-hmm. he is in like a kind of a, a group of two other Native Americans, and they're like kind of the last of their kind. And British are coming in; they're fighting the French Indian War, trying to get colonists to take part in the war. And Hawkeye and his people don't want to be a part of it. They end up kind of getting part grouped up with these two daughters of the cap, the kind of the commander of the army at the time. Um, and there, it kind of becomes an interplay between them and the French and these Native, this Native American group. Um, what's so different in terms of visually, most of man's movies have a cold look to them. They're very cool. They're very blue. And this is the one film that's mm-hmm. fully warm. It's yeah. lush. The colors are popping with the greens and earthy tones. And it just feels it. It feels like what I, what I said when I watched it was like Pirates of the Caribbean has a lot to thank from this movie because it's shot mm-hmm. very similarly. It has very similar kind of visual style. The music very similar and mm. what they're doing. Uh, the kind of love story at the core is very is is, is kind of has remnants of the same thing i always think of this one and and legends of the fall i haven't it's seen like legends of the this. fall you've never seen legends i've never of seen legends of fall yeah oh beautiful film <laughs> gorgeous really gorgeous great music great score so you said these two are the ones you think of in, in terms I of i think like... of at the same time as and you know there, there was this was this was a, a good time for like period pieces you know yeah. like like uh glory was around this time late eight, right? like 80, 89 i believe is what it is and this is 92 yeah. but yeah still saying yeah yeah like um some some really really well crafted kind of uh period piece war movies yeah, more movies it was kind of like, yeah big period for this but yeah i so basically the big thing is like again going with the detail of these movies uh but this one it's not really michael mann it's the one and only Daniel Day Lewis, who is the mm-hmm. one who's going to extremes for this film, uh, it's well known for his preparation. He lived in the wilderness, where his character might have lived, hunting and fishing and living off the land for several months prior to shooting. Several months, I believe, is is the key. There is that he did this for a while. Is this no, that was Lincoln, where he built a whole log a cabin. House, right? Yes, yes, log cabin. Apparently, yeah, yeah. yes. I had heard. I don't know if I, someone had said it was Alabama where he like was living in the wilderness. I don't know if that's true, but he lived somewhere in the wilderness. Um, but the shoot did employ more than 900 Native Americans from all over the U.S., mostly from the Cherokee tribes, for this movie. Um, they nice. use a lot of Native American languages. That's not just like one specific tribe, but multiple tribes mm. in this film. The film had many long nights. Uh, uh, specifically for when the sea, the big kind of battle scenes happened at night, the siege scenes. Um, loudspeakers were installed around the battlefield and forts. Directions could easily be given to the hundreds of cast and crew. One night after many long hours, man shouted over the speakers, "What's that orange light? Turn out that orange light!" And after a pause, another voice came over the speakers saying, "That's the sun, Michael." Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how much this man shoots. Because apparently, each scene took at least twenty takes is what it sounded like. Uh, concerned about the growing cost of the movie, 20th Century Fox and a representative to the set who did nothing but stand behind Michael Mann say, that's enough, Michael, move on during the takes. Michael, we're not going to let you make this one a three and a half hour <laughs> cut. You can stop well, shooting. 
speaking of that the film's initial cut was three hours long <laughs> he needs a better editor he needs a he needs a, a stronger willed editor i know i like i like the i like the i'm i I think it earns every minute of this. Uh, and because of that, 20th Century Fox actually moved the release date of the film, forcing man to trim the movie before the film's release. It ended up being a boss, box office and critical success, grossing $143 million off a $40 million budget. Um, quickly, it was it was uh, currently seeing a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. Um uh ebert said it's quite an improvement on cooper's all but unreadable book and a worthy <laughs> successor to the, to the original film it's the only film trivia piece in this the only film that michael mann ever directed that won an oscar for best sound <laughs> it was the only nomination this film received and it was the only win that uh that he he got for the film i gotta i gotta admit something i i am a i am a no captions kind of person i don't like captions unless I, a film needs them i had to turn them on for thief the mix was the mix was not great <laughs> oh man it might have been it might have been you know whatever print amazon had but like that, that i could not hear the dialogue well i think i think that's actually a good point to bring up because i think with some of his movies i think miami vice is the key one where like the dialogue is almost unlike you can't understand it at all but it's more about the visuals of the movie and the world you're living in is the thing. It's like, man, my advice we'll get to later, but like, it's almost like, doesn't make, it's so chaotic. It doesn't make any sense. For the most part, like the, the plot is so like hardcore, like crime plot mm-hmm. that it like, if you it's, it makes you work. So you really just have to pay attention to the visuals. is kind of the thing. Um, so after, um, after the last Mohicans, after the success of that, uh, he decides to go back to an old idea he had done before for his next film. Uh, in 1989, man had made a television film called LA takedown. That was supposed to be a pilot for a, a TV show that was never picked up. Um, so essentially that would become heat. And so Thomas, what is heat about? Heat is is about two men or, or two groups of men, really. It's it's uh, some very professional, experienced bank robbers and a, a group of detectives who are trying to bring them down. One is led by Robert De Niro, the the bank robbers, and one is led by Al Pacino, Vincent Hanna, as as an LAPD detective. And De Niro's got this kind of one last score thing going on. They've all got something going on in their lives where they're like, we gotta, we gotta stop robbing banks and focus on our personal lives. Yeah. Meanwhile, Vincent Hanna's personal life is kind of falling apart because he's so obsessed with his job. Yeah. The obsession of the characters continue Mm -hmm. with this movie. And it's, this is to me is, is prime Michael Mann, everything that he's been working for, beforehand it all leads to heat mm-hmm. i feel like and i think to put into context too it's like i think it's it's easy to forget that at this point in time in 1995 al pacino and robert Niro had not made a movie together nope so it was such a big deal that well, they, they had these... they had not you know been in the same scene 
Yeah, very, scene. Sorry, very yeah, famously, scene. very They're famously, in both two, in Godfather Part Two, but but in not in the same scene. very different time periods. And so the whole movie, like the whole thing, is like you're like, oh man, Pacino and De Niro are going to be in a movie together. It's going to be or be in the same scenes together. They're it's a cat and mouse game between them, and he they're in a one they're one scene together basically they're in kind of mm-hmm. two the ending but like it's one scene scene they're in together and again it's a diner scene like thief mm-hmm. and it's where these two characters kind of lay everything out on the table yeah both professionally and personally and that's where this kind of mutual respect goes to it's the whole like i got a wife i got a, i got a woman i got this and the whole thing it's again he said it before it's like de niro stets like states like if I can't walk out on them in 30 seconds, like I have to make sure I have no attachment so I can walk out in 30 seconds, basically. Yeah. Like if you the heat's on, walk can, away in 30 seconds. If you feel the heat around the corner. If you, yeah, exactly. And, and then you have the kind of whole like, Hey, we like each other, but if it's between, if it's between you making this, this man, a widow, his wife, a widow, boy, I will put you down or whatever he says mm-hmm. to, to <laughs> and it was like, Oh yeah, that's fair. But if I'm in the same thing and you're going to, make me make me dead or whatever i'm gonna do the same thing to you and it's like cool then let's go like that's that's what it's just such a like for a crime movie that's so out of the ordinary for a scene like that to happen mm-hmm. right he pulls him over you know we've, we've had that scene in thief where he get, frank gets pulled over and you know they proceed to harass the you know harass him and then this one he pulls him over and you're like oh it's gonna go down he's gonna try and arrest him now and he's like Let's you and me go get a cup of coffee. And he's like, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. <laughs> I think what I heard was that they didn't do any rehearsals for it. And I think it was that De Niro didn't want to do rehearsals for it or something. And then kind of tell. And so basically they just shot the scene without any rehearsals. And he just put two cameras on both of them and just let them go and i think it's like the third take is that what you see is what was used or something hmm. yeah see denaire felt like the same should not be rehearsed so that the, uh that the unfamiliarity between the two characters would seem more genuine and they shot the scene with no practice rehearsals and it it works guy told me one time don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner now, if you're on me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a, a marriage? Well, that's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I'm a salesman. So then, if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant. Yeah, it is what it is. It's that, or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. What are some of your favorite scenes you have in this movie? Um. I mean, this movie's wild, man. It's like, <laughs> like I said, I was saying earlier with kind of him and Depon- like it's pulpy, but it's self-serious. And there's so many famous people in this movie. Like everybody, every, everybody's in this movie. Danny Trejo's in this yeah. movie. Um, 
Uh, Ashley, Ashley Judd, Miles T. Williamson, uh, yeah. Natalie Portman, <laughs> Natalie Portman, um, Tone Loke, Ted Girl, Levine, Hank Azaria. Um, it's kind of like if you look at it, this is the one where it's like the most like um, Michael Mann like ensemble. Like, like basically, a lot of people who are in this movie have been in other Michael Mann movies. Yeah, it's yeah. like John Voight's in uh, who's in this movie is in Ali. Uh, Michael T. Williamson also in Ali. West Studi is in Last of the Mohicans. Tom Noonan was Tom in Noonan Man Manhunter. Pacino's in The Insider. It's all very like it's it's kind of his big ensemble piece. And then there's Val Kilmer. And there's Val Kilmer. Just absolutely killing it with his ponytail. He's he is great in this movie. The the I mean you you have to say it the 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 street shootout the street is shootout. just insane. And I know. If if you if you dabble in movie trivia at all, I'm sure some some guy on the internet has told you that they, what is it? Military training academies yeah, yeah, use that yeah. scene for like proper gun handling. Is that that's like how how well uh, De Niro and and Kilmer were trained to to use their guns in this scene? But yeah, it's it's it is precise the way they they move through that that street. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Kilmer was apparently thrilled to find out that uh marine recruits are rarely shown that scene of sh- to show how he uh changes yeah, his he magazine swaps mags right way, yeah. way he swaps mags and how like they're like most professionals came do some of the stuff they're doing in this movie and also too apparently i think it was that michael yeah rather than dubbing and gunshots during the bank robbery shootout michael mann had microphones carefully placed around the sets so the audio could be captured live Wow. Uh, this ad- this added the impact of the scene because it sounded like no other gunfight shown on screen. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was they just captured whatever li- not live rounds, but whatever the kind of the yeah whatever their their blanks going their off their blanks were coming off. Um, but again, this also establishes kind of the recurring theme of what he says. It's like this isn't your money; it's the bank's money. We're not selling mm-hmm. your money, and that's a key not just to man's crime movies, but also heist movies in general. Hell, Hell or High Water is kind of that way too. Mm-hmm. Words like we're still in the bank's money, not people's money. That gives these characters some sense of like, I'm not the bad guy here. I'm stealing from the the evil people of the banks. I'm not stealing yeah. from regular people. Yeah. Like Ocean's Eleven goes even further and is like casinos are even worse than banks. They yeah. are really stealing from you. <laughs> yeah, you're using your money for that. But yeah, I this movie, it's the details are amazing. I think it's one last movie against this way too, but it's it's this again, it's this huge canvas. He is telling a crime heist movie on this epic scale and mm-hmm. it feels like an epic it all he actually makes his movies feel weirdly like poetic and romantic is what i think yeah you know you know intimate details about like everyone's lives yes and that's that's what ultimately bound i think i think the reason this movie has endured more than anything else is of all the movies that have tried to do that cat and mouse thing this I think is the most balanced a like cop and robber yeah. story has ever been in that all, all those shootout scenes, you were like, I truly don't want either of these men to die. <laughs> yeah. You're rooting for both of them. Mm-hmm. It's like, and what's so funny to me, it's like with Tom, the shootout, it's like the shootout happens and there's a whole other hour left the movie to go. Yeah. Like it's a long, it's a long unraveling of the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Like this is the one that really kind of goes with the aftermath of a heist. Yep. And again, De Niro, it's the one big job that it's going to let him go out and be done. And it's his downfall. 
Yeah, and and like like we were saying about kind of the two ends of the spectrum on um of a heist movie, you know, there's the the caper movies. A lot of times are about watching all the little pieces fall into place. Yeah, and this yeah. and Heat is about watching all the little pieces fall apart. Like every little decision that that someone who is an utmost professional can make, you're just sitting there going, "Don't do that! Oh, don't do that! Don't do that!" And just watching it get further and further and further out of control. And that goes with De Niro. So with Neil McCauley, De Niro's character, is that Neil, again, that idea of professionalism. And it's the opening heist when a uh, when a uh, uh, Juan Grow or whatever Wayne Grow, Kevin Gage mm-hmm. character, who kills the cops in the open or the um, armored uh, car drive or armored truck drivers in the opening scene. That's the downfall of De Niro is that this unprofessional guy messed up this thing and got my people killed later on mm-hmm. i have to get him back he could literally drive away and the movie is over yep. he is safe but that unprofessionalism and put them under he has to settle and that's what puts him down but yeah it's just it's just so many great moments in this movie can i can i tell you what i can i tell you 15 minutes i'd trim out of this movie okay I don't need Wayne Grow to be a serial killer too. Like that. it's an odd, it's an odd addition that <laughs> like, we never I'm really fine. pay I'm off. Fine with him dying. He he, yeah. he like is is that that you know off the rails crew member that that killed a bunch of cops. Like cool, yeah, I I get his vendetta against him. Like to have him also be a serial killer is such yeah. a weird little footnote. <laughs> And like you can see him, you can have him doing other crimes. I think that's fine. Yeah, well, I mean, he teams up with William Fitchner too. Like that, yeah. you know, he, he backstabs De Niro multiple times. Yeah, and like at the end, when you're like, oh, De Niro's got to go after him. I don't even think De Niro knows he's a serial killer. It's not like he's like, oh, this guy's a piece of trash. He's also a serial killer. Because it's <laughs> not like it's. I'm not saying we do this, but like you know, it's like they finally, oh, we find another victim in his hotel room or something. I don't think mm. is it, or because is is it? There's a is there a woman in the hotel with them? Is what it is. When he goes and, at the end, I don't think so. I think it's just him. Yeah. And so you're just kind of like, cool. We never like kind of pay that off. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, he's a serial killer. But yeah. yeah, it's 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 fine. The one interesting kind of beat I like, kind of separate plot line in is uh, Dennis Haysbert, his his role. Yeah. As, as, uh-huh. It's a fantastic plot line. And yeah. also probably one of the more heartbreaking plot lines yeah. of the movie. Because he's a guy who's because you don't really know where he's gonna come into play for a bit. He's mm-hmm. kind of just being shown. That's what makes this is a, kind of a mos- like a tapestry or mosaic of crime. What this what he is, and he's like getting out of jail. He has a girlfriend. He's trying to get back on the right foot. He like wants to be a cook. Is what it kind of comes off as. Mm-hmm. It's what it is. He goes to I think Bob's Big Boy is where he's at, where he's cooking at. If I'm not mistaken, uh, in Burbank. And like Bud Court is a Bud Court that's just like you're gonna be uh, mopping the floors, basically. Yeah, but Bud Court is someone who is obviously taken advantage of parolees in the in the past. Like knows yeah. exactly how to do like blackmailing parolees into doing his shit work. That's like, oh yeah, if you if you if I don't like what you do, like I'm putting your parole officer, you should up drunk or whatever or yeah. something. And like so his character's like it's again this idea of like in this world if you've been a if you've been arrested you've gone to jail society makes it almost impossible for you to have a good life after you've paid your debt to society yeah. and it and it it puts it in perspective you know we've got these uh, we've got Val Kilmer we've got Tom Sizemore kind of going like 
all right, this one more job and I'm and I'm going straight. And like they've already got money. Like like look at look at Danny Trejo's house. Like they yeah. they are all living in like gorgeous houses. And they're like, all right, one more job, then I'm gonna have enough money to go straight. And meanwhile, Dennis Haysbert is like trying, earnestly trying to go straight, and he's got like nothing going for him. Yeah. And then when when De Niro comes in that kitchen, all of a sudden he's like, oh, that's that guy I met in jail or up mm-hmm. wherever he was at. It's like, oh, we need an extra guy because Trejo. It's just like happenstance where it's just like the paths cross again and Haybert's Haysbert like is like yeah I can't what why am I in this job like I have no I can't I can't progress in this way I can't have a life this way the one thing I'm good at is being a criminal basically because mm-hmm. society has made me that way and he's the one who's the one who gets caught in the crossfire the most in the end yep. and it's 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 such a sad story um but yeah I but I think the cast is amazing it, I think it's one of maybe I don't know of very many crime movies that have such a stat cast as we're saying, like yep. from top to bottom. All right. Here's, here's my question. Yeah. Is Pacino good in this movie? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I agree. I, I think he is. I think he is. I think he's I, got a great ass. <laughs> well, what I read is that he goes, he revealed that he viewed his character as being under the influence of cocaine throughout the entire movie. Oh, I 100%. couldn't tell if that was the character or if that was Al Pacino. <laughs> he's got this one. It's like the way that he says it, but when they're when they're one of the maybe I can't cut the serial killer storyline out of it because when he's like looking at the body and he looks up and he sees the mother of this like young woman, uh-huh. he's like, "Oh, what is she doing?" Here? It's just like the weirdest <laughs> line reading of that line. No, it, it's he's so erratic, but I think in a good way. I mean, it's probably probably overdoes it in several scenes but that's what kind of makes it so good to me because some scenes he's very calm and then this will come up later i won't bring i want to talk about this in the insider a little bit he's very calm a little bit and then just gets so loud um one scene i like him in it's the uh it's when they're in the like stockyards or whatever they're at like in the kind of like abandoned or where that where the uh storage units are Mm-hmm. And they're like, where are they? They're pointing over here. Like when, when basically they're following De Niro and his mem- his crew and they go there, stay at like, what were they talking about? And then Pacino's like, Oh, I know what we're looking at. You know what we're looking at? You know what we're looking at? We just got made boys. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's such a, and he's just so like, yeah, like just up and like hands up in the <laughs> air. <laughs> and De Niro's kind of laughing that he's like, yeah, this guy's crazy. <laughs> Do you not like Pacino in the movie? Is that what you're asking? I don't know. This is this is that <laughs> this is that period in time when Panita when when Pacino just like like switched from this into like Sin of a Woman. Sin of a Woman was after before this? before this before this before this. Before this. Yeah, like that was that was like the hua. That was, that was like a, a new yeah. a new age of Pacino. <laughs> yes, I agree. Where it, I you know I had seen. I'm not sure the first Al Pacino movie I'd ever seen, but I saw Cinema Woman used to play on like UPN all the time. And I remember the first time I watched the Godfather, Uh I was like, that's, that can't be Al Pacino playing (laughs) Michael. He's so quiet. Like he's just a normal person. (laughs) Yeah. Well, see, that's what I love about the insider. And I, and maybe I'll segue in this heat. Just so you guys know, heat was a big, a a big success. I'll, I'll leave that there. A big classic. influence big influence on a lot of people but i want to segue here because of this 
Pacino in The Insiders is fantastic and might be one of his most underrated performances he's ever given because I think he plays the character so quiet and calm throughout the entire movie until he doesn't, until he needs to be loud. Hmm. And so for the people that know, The Insider is about, it, it's about, uh, Pacino plays this uh, CBS producer who gets wind of a kind of, information about the tobacco industry basically and he meets up with uh, a man who jeffrey uh uh wingan who is a whistleblower essentially he has been let go from his company he's like a scientist who works for tobacco industry and basically showcase finds out that tobacco industry knows that nicotine is addictive and can cause harm to people mm-hmm. who smoke it for a certain amount of times um and uh lowell bergman is play is, is out who's al pacino's character and the whole movie is about them trying to release this story of Wingan doing a CBS interview on 60 Minutes saying what he knows. Uh, it's it's man's biggest um, Oscar movie. Mm-hmm. In reality, it gets nominated for uh, seven Oscars. Doesn't win any of them, as we've said before. Best picture, best director, best actor with crow it's right in russell crowe's hot streak it's like i think the year before it's the year yes the year before gladiator it's 1999 any the decade um but it's a fantastic film i think it might be man's most underrated movie but still dealing with these characters these men who are obsessed with their jobs and it hurts their professional life outside of it Pacino's character it's one of the best we didn't talk about this in journalism month we did journalism back in the day but it is one of the best movies that showcases like an ethical dilemma in journalism and how even though things go right kind of in the end Pacino still can't live with himself or live with him in this job because of how it went down because he wasn't able to protect the 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 his witness or his his source Mm-hmm. better than what he could and it's one of his best performances it's so subtle it's so calm it's the exact opposite of heat <laughs> he's not on cocaine she's got a great ass <laughs> um hank is area in that scene uh man <laughs> um but the insider is i think fantastic but again it's it starts kind of the trend a little bit man's movies have always been like heat and last mohegans are successful financially critically and the insider successful critically but again is kind of a box office failure it Mm -hmm. makes 60 million dollars on a possible 68 to 90 million dollar movie and again this goes to the fact again michael mann makes intimate stories on a large canvas on a big scale and hollywood is still is not changed fully in 1999, but it's beginning to essentially. Mm-hmm. You pay me to go get guys like Wygan to draw him out, to get him to trust us, to get him to go on television. I do. I deliver him. He sits. He talks. He violates his own fucking confidentiality agreement, and he's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue, maybe the biggest, most expensive corporate malfeasance case in U.S. history. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on a limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. 
Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. You are a fanatic, an anarchist, you know that? If we can't have a whole show, then I want half a show rather than no show. But oh no, not you. You won't be satisfied unless you're putting the company at risk. What are you? Are you a businessman or are you a newsman? So he does Insider. And after that, he goes and then does Ali. And Ali, again, is this big epic of a movie uh, about one man's journey at being the best at what he does. And I and I didn't think this is going to fit very well with Michael Mann's kind of tropes and themes and stuff, but it actually does. However, I think it's his most like prestige movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about Muhammad Ali. It's about a specific point in Muhammad Ali's war- life. It's 10-year life of when... He wins his first championship as Cassius Clay, converts to to uh, uh, Islam, Nation of Islam, uh, with Malcolm X, and then it's kind of his return into Rumble in the Jungle because Rumble in the Jungle is kind of the definitive ending to Ali's historic career. It feels like even though he mm-hmm. did other things afterwards. Um, have you seen Ali before? I saw it not long after it came out. Okay. So it's been a been a while. He, he's a hot topic right now, but I think it's Will Smith's best performance. I think smith is actually fantastic in this role Mm -hmm. and it's one of the few times i've actually seen will smith disappear into a role i don't realize it's will smith for a while yeah because i think his he actually nails ali's voice pretty well and it's so it's so interesting watching behind the scenes because ali shows up and they're offset and smith is talking in the voice as ali (laughs) to ali and it's so surreal and smith has always i think one of the biggest critiques of smith sometimes is that he would be the way he chooses projects we've talked about this before i Mm -hmm. believe is the way he chooses projects where a lot of times it's based on box office gross a lot of the time and this might be the time where Will Smith's work. This is probably the Michael Mann's probably the best director Will Smith has worked with. I will go out on a limb and say. I, I remember when this, you know, when this was happening. This was around the time I started paying attention to movie news, and I remember yeah. thinking, like, this is this is a gamble for Will Smith. Like he he yes. does even at that point he didn't feel like someone who took risks, and. Um, and yeah, I, I I I would like to revisit this one because I do remember enjoying the performance, and I'm I I have been rooting for his kind of more actory roles yeah. just the past couple of times he's done it, but he is always someone who feels like he is capital A acting. Yes, and and I'm not always a fan of of, of that kind of performance. Yeah, so and- I, I wasn't sure how how this one would hold up to a revisit. I think I think the the issue with this movie is not his, his performance is actually and not say Michael Mann's direction. I think this is the one time where I think Mann's canvas is too big, mm. and in turn his the energy doesn't keep up with how big the canvas is. So the opening yeah. of the movie, fantastic! It's like it's Sam Cooke singing. It's eleven minute sequence of just like Ali or Cassius Clay Ali training for his fight against Sonny Liston. I believe mm-hmm. is what it is. Um, and it's it's him like out running, it's him going places, all under Sam Cooke's music. It's fantastic. And like the like for the middle of the movie, we're kind of just doing stuff. 
like we're getting good character moments but we're not mm-hmm. having not a lot's going on because it's, it's doing the whole vietnam war stuff and um him trying to get back in the ring but when he gets to africa i think that stuff is fantastic and it's one of will smith's best stuff and again that goes to michael mann like saying hey we're going to africa and shooting these scenes the zaire stuff we're not mm-hmm. going to go shoot this in like in like the Caribbean or wherever because I think they said like we're going to shot this in Jamaica or someplace, but we came into Africa to shoot this in Africa because man is so detailed of shooting the exact places where these things happen. Um, initially, the director was supposed to be Barry Sonnenfeld. Okay, which sorry to Barry would not been as good. No, that's a very different kind of movie. Because Smith brought it to him, and then Sonnenfeld exited the movie after Wild Wild West. And then I think Ron Howard was supposed to do it maybe before Will Smith was, or when when Will Smith got attached, it was supposed to be Ron Howard, possibly, then Barry Sonnenfeld, and then Michael Mann came in. And Mann talked about how earlier on, Will Smith was very, Will was very hesitant about doing Muhammad Ali, one of the biggest Mm -hmm. figures cultural figures of all time and man was like i'm gonna give you the criteria of what you need to do to become the best version of muhammad ali and it's not just boxing so he basically created all this stuff of what will smith should do to play this role and i think it works i think it works tremendously ali comes out to meet frazier but frazier starts to retreat if joe goes back an inch farther he'll wind up in a ringside seat Ali swings with his left. Ali swings with his right. Just look at the kid carry the fight. Frazier keeps backing, but there's not enough room. It's only a matter of time before Ali lowers the boom. Ali swings with his right. What a beautiful swing. But the punch lifts Frazier clean out of the ring. Frazier's still rising, and the referee wears a frown, because he can't start counting till Frazier comes down. Frazier's disappeared from view. The crowd is getting frantic, but our radar stations done picked him up. He's somewhere over the Atlantic. Now, who would have thought when they came to the fight, they was going to witness the launching of a black satellite? But don't wait for that fight. It ain't never going to happen. Only thing you could do is wonder and imagine. The movie, guess what, Thomas, was a box office failure. Wow. Um, it made $87 million at the box office. Oh, God, how much did it cost? <laughs> how much did it cost, Thomas? How much did this movie cost? $120 million pretty close 118 million is the top it's 107 to 118 million uh is how much this movie costs it made 80, 87 million be a box office failure one of the few box office failures in will smith's career at this point and yeah i it's 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 interesting again but you're starting to see you're starting to see man play with digital cinematography in this movie it's early usage usage of digital, digital cinematography early on in this film that that first 11 minutes and some of the fight stuff it's just the movie lacks an energy outside of the fighting scenes. But you have those tropes of Ali being so committed to being a boxer and being the best, the greatest in the world that his personal life of the wives and people coming in suffer suffers because of it, which is a big theme with, um, with Michael Mann's movies. After Ali, he makes collateral. We've discussed collateral on the show before, so feel free to go back and listen to that. Yeah. But it stars... Or Thomas, what's collateral about? Can you briefly say it? Jamie Foxx, cab driver, <laughs> picks up Tom Cruise. Hit Tom man. Cruise is a hitman. He makes Jamie Foxx drive him around to do his his hits for the night. 
Yeah. It becomes a kind of cat and mouse. I, I don't know if you can call it cat and mouse when they're like stuck together, but this this kind of like will this normal guy overcome this like yeah insane circumstance he's been put in. But it, but again, it's one of his. It's one of man's more like philosophical movies, oddly, because mm-hmm. of it's the two different philosophies of Cruz and Fox and how they have to kind of. I think the eventual ending is like Cruz is become so regimented, his character so like regimented, and Fox is the improviser, mm-hmm. and that's what makes and and Fox learned to improvise because of Cruz but Cruz can't fully commit to it. Like it's just an interesting kind of dynamic of like the philosophies they live through in this movie. And it goes back to, to Michael Mann's early college days of being interested in philosophy where this is the one where it feels like you're seeing it, even though he didn't write it, it feels like it's very much like in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And again, Cruz, a very professional person. Um, but Fox is, which is very big in his, his, his filmography but Fox is someone who is searching for that American dream, very similar to James Conn and Thief, but isn't fully there. And it's obtainable, but he's not jumping out and doing it himself. But mm. uh, it was it was a it was probably one of his bigger hits. It, budget was sixty five million. Box office gross was two hundred twenty million. But it's the first the first time that man shoots a, a film fully in digital cinematography. That's what it is. And he's pushing the boundaries of digital cinematography. I think it was probably looked at poorly early on, like col- with Collateral, Miami Vice, and Public Enemies. So, yeah. But go check that out. Hunter and I talked about it back in, um, oh, God, November is what it was. Yeah. Um, Not long ago, man. Yeah. And then we get into, we got, we're almost there, guys. Three more movies. Uh, Miami Vice, 2006. Thomas, what is Miami Vice about? uh it's about <laughs> two cops in miami in uh drug enforcement yeah yeah basically but my advice uh it's it's a neo-noir uh these two miami pd people uh two officers uh uh crockett and tubbs uh colin farrell and jamie jamie fox get tied into this like kind of drug trafficking operations that goes wrong early on uh they're in a, they're doing one mission an informant they they worked with before gets killed or uh, informant uh they know they get a call from and like basically this operation's been outed and now fox and Farrell have to go in as undercover to kind of save the operation in some way it's a very hardcore crime plot and Mm -hmm. miami vice i think is probably the most divisive film of michael mann's career Yep. Um, and I think it's because people were wanting a Miami Vice episode as a movie, and that's not really what he gives you. Is is the thing? Like, I think people were. I mean, I I definitely remember. I was definitely keeping up with with film at the point that this came out, and it was like, we want you know pastel colors, we want neon lights, and it's from my understanding still fairly like you know he's he's not shooting it any differently than he than he does any of his other stuff no it's 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 the way he shoots collateral and everything it's like it's 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 there's neon lights to it but like he goes the opposite way like no pastel colors like mm. in terms of costumes so it's very dark very very much like that but i think you gotta look at look at the time is that i feel like we're in a period where when we were seeing tv adaptations of older shows for the most part they were like tongue-in-cheek if that makes yes. sense yeah and my advice is is like the 
is somehow like, oh, that was kind of a hard, not a hardcore crime show, but it was a crime show back in the day. We're going to make it even more serious yeah it almost has this feeling of you know knowing that that man was involved in the creation of it it almost has this feeling of like hey we wanted to make this hard-hitting crime show in the 80s we couldn't get away with it on tv at that time so here's what it morphed into but now we're gonna make it like we wanted to do it yeah but i i think so i didn't like this movie originally when i first saw it well i was mixed on it my buddy logan big miami vice fan has been preaching it since i ever met him uh loves it and this time rewatching it i i liked it a lot more this time and okay. i think it's it is it is in the i like man a lot after these rewatches but i think he my advice is in the middle of his filmography it's not towards the violent people give it people say it is um i'm in the cult classic kind of world that that the cinematography is really interesting there's not many other films that have been shot like this movie before um and the way he uses digital cinematography the colors that he uses um i i i kind of like that you don't know what's going on in a way i think it's like you're really working to keep up with it and i love this kind of doomed these doomed relationships with the characters that goes hand in hand with this with man's themes of a person who is so focused on the work that uh their personal life becomes an afterthought mm-hmm. and uh, uh crockett Colin Farrell's character and um, uh, uh, Isabella, who's someone that she partners up with, he, who's basically involved in the drug, drug trafficking. He has he starts a relationship with her under his assumed his identity, his uh, his undercover identity, and he falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of on this crash co- a crash course, this this train wreck of a ride. Uh, of this romance that's destined to fail because of what they're involved in but like you have this kind of heartbreaking ending between the two and the ending shot is which again very thematic with man is he's walking back into the hospital to get back to work is the thing and that's these that's that's man's characters it's always it's about the professionalism it's about the work at hand uh and miami vice showcases that um but it is not well liked by some it is is a very i said a very divisive movie um but i think the opening club scene's great again the cast is great with farrell jamie fox amy harris justin thoreau who i don't know has a single line in the movie but is one of the team like it's one of colin farrell and and fox's guys uh kieran hines john hawks just a pretty stacked cast and i'm in the camp of it being reappraised for people uh and checking it out and but not trying to compare it to um the 80s show is kind of the best way to go into it uh the music here starting to get a little wonky start off with collateral with audio slave stuff it's starting to kind of date his movies more and more i will say um but still i think a a film worth revisiting uh it would be i guess a financial success really it made 164 million. Wow. Okay. But can you guess the budget for this movie, Thomas? 140. You're you're getting good. You're getting good. It's 135. Okay. <laughs> so like it probably it didn't make money. Like I know it's just, it like made a profit technically, but you add in marketing on top of that, mm-hmm. it didn't make money. So you've been seeing this kind of again, he paints his movies on a big canvas and hollywood is changing at the time you can't you can, people aren't giving 100 million dollars to make a movie after he does miami vice 
he does, I think three years later, he does Public Enemies. So Thomas, what is Public Enemies about? Public Enemies is about the kind of the birth of the FBI's crime unit, uh, specifically targeting John Dillinger and kind of the the rise of bank robbers mm-hmm. during the uh, Great Depression. So the the main characters are John Dillinger, played by Johnny Depp, and, and Purvis, played by uh, Christian Bale. And this is the one I think was intended to be a miniseries, but became a movie. Because mm, which... it, it definitely kind of touches on, you've got, you know, Channing Tatum's Pretty Boy Floyd, got Babyface Nelson, you got Creepy Carpus. Um, you've got all the, it kind of hits on all the, all the greatest hits of that era. Yeah. Brings them all together. You've got, you know, Billy Crudup in there as um, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. I believe we got Jason Clark's in this movie. I think this was the first time I had ever seen Jason Clark. It I might be for me as well. First. Yeah. Um, cause I think there's not much before this is Oh nine. I'm a big Jason Clark guy. Big yeah. Jason Clark fan. And then lawless and zero dark 30 is still 20 in 2012 is cause depth's very hot right now in the news as people know. Um, do you think this is depth's last great performance or do you consider it great at all? This one was weird. I, I, I knew enough, you know, I, I was, I was still in high school. I saw this one in theaters. Um, I remember ha- coming away with a weird feeling of this one. And it, and it is kind of, we, we said earlier that, that in a lot of his movies, man is kind of both tearing down and building up this idea of kind of the glamorous yep. bank robber, thief, whatever. And this is definitely a movie that that feels at odds within itself mm. as to whether we should be glamorizing or, or not the like John Dillinger and, and these yeah. kind of characters. And so casting Depp in this, especially in this period. Yes. Like factors into that a little bit. Like yeah. I, when I remember going to see this in theaters and it was like Johnny Depp, you know, this is post Pirates of the Caribbean. He's a he rock star like, at this point. He's a yeah, rock star. He, he like can do no wrong yep. film wise. We won't dive into anything else, but, um, and, and, and then you can feel from this movie, like it's like, is John Dillinger like super suave and cool? Is he this kind of lame guy that can't do anything else with his life except for Rob Banks, Banks. and can't hold a relationship. And, yeah. and, and it's almost like the movie doesn't know. And maybe, you know, if it was, if it was a mini series, maybe it would have been able to dive into a little bit more, I think um, I think Ebert said one of the problems was that that he and Marion Cotillard didn't have enough chemistry in this to really sell this the, idea the, that it was like his love of her that that really like brought him down. But yeah, the doom romance of it all. Yeah, it does. It does have the feel of like a really interesting historical piece of of you know almost like edu- educational almost. Yeah. Uh-huh. But but as far as like a character study, I, I feel like it doesn't quite. It doesn't quite hit it, and and I and I'm and I I'm not sure it's one of one of Depp's greats. Oh, this is great, but I think it's his last. Some people might say Black Mass, but I think this is one where I think because it's one of the more stripped down versions of Depp we've seen. Mm-hmm. I think after this, you're gonna see Depp kind of going to the, I mean, the he just the really groups. goes into his Tim Burton phase. Yeah, his big makeup phase. phase. And and that's been a critique of, of his movies that that last decade after this. But this is kind of one of the last few times where it's like it's Depp warts and all basically. Yeah, just playing a guy, you know. He he doesn't have makeup to disappear under or anything. No. 
and like i think i think ebert says like it's it's one of the one of the best like kind of gangster performances because mm-hmm. it feels like he's not basing his performance on a gangster yeah, like he's not true. basing it on other movies that he's seen before which is a big thing that some gangster movies did and how like in the 30s like gangster movies based it what they like it was kind of a exaggerated version of it and this feels like a more subtle version of that um this is the one that i think people were expecting to be like heat in some way because mm-hmm. it's because you gotta think too christian bale is a year after dark knight and i remember in the in the moment where depp and bale were probably two of the biggest stars i think in my world because of dark knight and pirates and people were expecting a heat like moment in some way. And you kind of get a very short one between the two. And Christian Bale maybe has three lines in the scene. Like it's when they're in the jail cell, basically. But I think Depp's great in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Bale, Bale, Bale's the critique. Everyone kind of says like, Oh, well, Bale doesn't do anything. That's Melvin purpose. Like he's just kind of there. But I think, cause in that scene's kind of the key and rewatching it this time where Depp kind of says to Bale, like, you need to get a new line of work. You're not made out for this job. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the reoccurring thing throughout is that Purvis is slowly thinking, am I right to be an FBI agent? Because the ending title card is that he leaves the FBI a year after he catches Dillinger or kill, or, yeah. they, or Dillinger's killed. And so it kind of says, like, oh, maybe Dillinger is right. He wasn't made for this world mm-hmm. because everyone else was, and he can't, he can't, live up to the expectations that Billy Crudup as Jagger Hoover has for him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something too. The movie is, is as equally interested in kind of tearing down the legend of the FBI, of the G man or whatever, yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the untouchables as, as it is the, the kind of glamorous bank robbers. So there's interesting stuff here. And I think, I think there's some great, uh, in terms of cinematography and visual style, I think the, the raid on the like the the house when it's like the shoot the the when when bale's like on the on the sidecar like on mm-hmm. the running board shooting the tommy gun like that was an image in the trailer that i still think about it's in the movie where it's like just like illuminating his face as the bullets go off in the darkness i think it's mm-hmm. fantastic this this one is definitely as as far as like the development of digital filmmaking goes especially in action movies you know this is the same time period as this is shaky cam where we're, yeah. we're born, like, born ultimatum is like the year yeah. before this i believe this idea that all, all these filmmakers were like whoa this new digital camera is so light i can just pop it off the tripod and i can do anything with it and so this one is interesting because it's not he's man's not doing any of that kind of shaky cam stuff he's not trying to get it like right up no. in your vice faces but he can he is able to put the camera in a lot more interesting places than you would be able to do with a big film camera. So, so you get some, some, some really, really cool shots. I, I like in the, the opening breakout, which is a, is a great sequence, but there's, there's the, the shot and reverse shot of John kind of hanging out of the car, trying to hold on to his, his yes, mentor, his buddy, yeah. his throwback to, to Okla and, and thief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's trying to like hang on to his mentor who's been shot in the breakout attempt. And the, the camera is like just outside of the car, but it's like looking down on his mentor as they're dragging mm-hmm. him down the road. And it's just, he's, he's able to put it. You can tell that man's able to put the camera in places he never was able to before, but he's not putting it, you know, in the hands of, 
of some guy who's jostling it around in the middle of a fight scene or even some of the car scenes when like it's like this very intense close-up of not intense but a, a unique close-up of depth when he's just driving the car like it's mm-hmm. very close like he ha- he loves having close or even the sh- like, there's a lot of close-ups he's doing it since the insider where he has these like very intense close-ups where you get like he's even doing tokyo vice some in the first episode or the first ep- the episode he directed um but he likes doing that but in terms of comparisons to say thief and heat, we have the kind of heat moment of them two meeting. I think your kind of thief scene of like the diner talk with them that he tries to recreate, not recreate, but tries to emulate in some way is when he meet when, when Depp meets Marion Cotillard, uh, the, the second time at the, or at the hat check thing. Mm. And he's like, I like fast cars, good music or whatever. That feels like James Caan in a very, very brief s- sequence. Oh, but yeah. Like James Caan listing off, like, this is who I am. Like, well, and you, you know, him him going and dragging her out of that bar when he's at the hat check and the guy's like, I'm trying to get my coat. And he like grabs him and, and yeah. pulls his ticket out. And, That's you know. what he does at the bar <laughs> when he goes and yeah. grabs her for the date. And she's like, you stood me up. Which is exactly what Kutskiar says. But like, you left me out there. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be waiting for you or whatever. Wow, I didn't realize how similar that was until just this moment. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'd watched I'd, I'd, the couple that I have watched yeah. for this episode. <laughs> I've all done in, in like 48 hours, and, and so when it's his your mind. when his when his older mentor was, uh, you know, didn't make it out of the prison escape attempt. I was like, oh, Willie Nelson. <laughs> But no, yeah, and then you have, I guess, more earlier, you have that that baby face Nelson, like the unprofessional person, the loose cannon who screws everything up for everybody, it feels like, and mm-hmm. Dillinger hates being unprofessional. And there's always this job, po- this possibility of this job that's going to be the uh, the end-all, be-all for him, that he can go off mm-hmm. and, and have a life. Well, and, and the mafia is kind of ruining the, yeah. the purity of organized crime ruining ruining the the pure sport of bank robbery yeah and i just is it is steven yeah i forgot steven lang is also in manhunter i just realized that steven Mm. lang who's one of the fbi guys in manhunter along with this movie and john ortiz who plays one of the mob guys he's in three of man's movies pretty pretty he's he's in uh Bill Camp Bill pops Camp in this in movie I, I i i clock that Do you i had no BC? idea who bill camp was in 2000 at this point yeah Roy Cochran also in this movie. Mm-hmm. How about Roy Cochran, and Jason Clark, two f- future winning time, two, two Lakers, <laughs> two Lakers. <laughs> Stephen Dorff as well. Uh, oh yeah, and Matt Craven, of course. Matt Craven's one of the FBI agents. Briefly. Big Matt Craven guy. I know you are. Uh, and and Channing Tatum was not really fully big yet at this point, Mm-mm. like at all. He was he was big, but he wasn't like prestige movie. I, no. I remember it being weird that he was in this. So it's like, oh, he was like, oh, that's the guy from Step Up. Is kind of like what it was at that point. And I think then G- yeah, G.I. Joe. She, she's the man. She's the man. G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. And then a year later, he does your favorite film of all time, Dear John. Or your your acting debut, I guess is the better mm-hmm. way to put that. Um, but I, I like Public Enemies. This is the one I find myself defending. Where everyone else is defending Miami Vice, I find myself defending Public Enemies. Where I think there's some because they're like, oh, it's it's like it's I write that one off because like it's trying to be heat or it's trying to be this, but I think there's elements worth discuss like like looking at specifically Depp's performance and the way man is pushing digital cinematography forward. Like again, I love I love the Depp scene when Depp walks into the FBI office towards the end and just walks around. He owns the place and no one knows who he is. 
Mm. Like it's it's the rock or even his scene when he goes to jail and he's like being interviewed by the press and he's like talking everyone up and he's the like the big face of the show and no one cares that he's a criminal that's robbed banks and possibly mm-hmm. killed it probably killed people um but no yeah i think it's one worth this revisiting if you haven't seen it in a while um because of all the stuff we've talked about that's, that's there and again that relationship between law enforcement and criminals and how it's in that heist world you act like a confident man mr purvis you got a few qualities probably Pretty good from a distance, especially when you got the fell out numbered. But up close, toe to toe, when somebody's about to die right here, right now, I'm used to that. What about you? Goodbye, Mr. Dillinger. I'll see you down the road. No, you will not. The only way that you would leave a jail cell is when we take you out to execute you. Well, we'll see about that. Gotta get yourself another line of work, Melvin. It made $214 million. Okay. This is what happens when you have a debt movie in 2009 yeah. at this point. Yeah. And Christian uh, Bale. And Christian Bale. It, the budget was 80 to $100 million. Wow. So it was it was it was the last big hit at that time, I think, because it was based on a book. I think uh, DiCaprio was possibly involved at one point. Yeah, he was going to play maybe yeah he was going to play Dillinger, but he left to go make Shutter Island instead. Mm, okay. So it was clearly did fine. Uh, Ebert praised it. I think gave it three and a half stars, and also Billy Crudup got a lot of praise for Jagger Hoover. Is what it was. So they made Black Hat, which came out in 2015. And Black Hat is about nuclear plant meltdown happens and uh, FBI and the Chinese government kind of create a task force to figure out who this hacker is that is causing these these things to occur, these, this nuclear plant to blow up and the kind of stock market to go crazy. Um, and essentially the, the, the task force, one of the main guys... He's one of the Chinese kind of people that comes in to be part of the task force. He gets his old uh, college roommate who is a convicted computer hacker who's played by Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> and he is going to join the, the task force to find out who, who is causing these issues within the nuclear plant or who's causing these kind of criminal offenses in the modern way of creating criminal offenses. And that's through online and hacking. Um, the movie... This is one that's getting reappraised as we speak, like these past few years, because it was really? not. Yes, Black Hat is being reappraised, and some people really are like being the drum for Black Hat. I watched this time first time. I don't love it. I'm intrigued to kind of revisit in a few years time, because now I know what the movie is doing. I guess that makes sense. Like I'm just expecting what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an interesting take on kind of like our our modern society and how we communicate with one another and what would happen if this stuff goes wrong and this information how information is controlled and things like that um he's again playing with the with the digital cinematography of it all which is interesting i think one of the more unbelievable things to me it's not that chris hemsworth is like this big musker dude who's a hacker it's that like he can kick ass as hard as well as he does as a hacker that's my only issue 
with the movie to me, mm. the main issue. Um, but it's interesting. It's worth looking at if you haven't seen it, but it was a, a massive bomb. It made $19 million, $19.7 million on a $70 million budget. Um, critically, it was, it was one of his worst reviewed films, criticizing the casting and pace of the movie. But some people actually put it on their year-end list of best of films. As I said, it's being reappraised. There is a director's cut that has been kind of somewhat re- like it was released on direct TV at one point, but then taking off, taking off, it was shown on TV at one point, but it's never been released anywhere else online or on physical media. Uh, outside of the keep, it's the most uh, most uh, interested director's cut that audiences have have for Michael Mann movies. So that was his last movie he made. And it had some of the things that we talked about with the, with the tropes of Michael Mann of he's a modern thief in a way he actually talks about like uh, how he wired money uh, from banks. He says, I steal from banks, not people. That's mm-hmm. all kind of there in this modern sense. That's there in public enemies. That's because, because John Dillinger says we're here for the banks might not your money. Same thing. Neil says in heat, it's all kind of there. So where is Michael Mann now? Well, that movie came out in 2015, and that was seven years ago. And there's been a big gap. It's been his biggest gap for movies ever since. He just reappeared and was a producer, back to TV, producer for Tokyo Vice, a show on HBO Max. I just watched episode one, very much Michael Mann. <laughs> it's, a, it's a character uh, who is a person who's obsessed with their profession, who's very professional at what they're trying to do, and is he's a news reporter who's trying to cover the Yakuza in Japan, uh, played by Ansel Elgort. Uh, all his it's interesting seeing digital cinematography catch up with Michael Mann, if that mm-hmm. makes sense of how we're now everything's digital, and now he can do as much as he wants whenever he wants, and he's doing that in Tokyo Vice. The next movie he is making, which was just released today, that they are prepping for the film is a movie called Ferrari that's starting off in Italy uh, as of May and will start filming in July, it looks like. Uh, it's going to start Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Shailene Woodley. Um, it's been a movie that man has been trying to make for two decades, it sounds like. Uh, and it's about um, ex-race car driver Ferrari is in crisis, bankruptcy stocks the company he and his wife built from nothing 10 years earlier it's about their marriage it's about i think kind of racing in some way so it's interesting because he's doing this project it's supposed to be played by hugh jackman that the role of adam driver is doing now but that's his next movie and it'll probably come out maybe next year or a year later we'll see if we get a three-hour cut of this movie <laughs> um but what's interesting about it is that he was actually supposed going into unrealized projects he was actually supposed to direct Ford versus Ferrari. At I, one I point. do remember that. Yeah, he was supposed to do. It was called something else. I think uh, uh, "Go to Hell and Back" or something is what it's called. It was something in that realm, and it was. And he dropped out, and um, James Mangold came in to direct it. Uh, again, would have been a Christian Bale reunion with Michael Mann. Um, he also, uh, I said, breathless earlier in terms of unrealized projects. He was also going to direct Hancock with will smith the superhero movie but dropped out to to do miami vice instead what a bizarre movie that is yeah and we were supposed to get a sequel at some point and the big one that he was supposed to direct and develop for a while 
and then finally dropped out and did Ali instead was The Aviator. Ooh. So that's two movies with like a possible DiCaprio thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and DiCaprio does it does something with Michael or Martin Scorsese instead. So moving on to stats, what do you think is his most popular film or top three most popular films? Heat number one. Heat is Heat is number one. Uh, Miami Vice. No. Manhunter. Mm, close, but no, that's number four. Thief. Thief number three. Uh, Last of the Mohicans. No, that's number six. It's one that we talked about the least because because. Oh, oh, collateral. Collateral number number two. Heat number one, collateral number number two, thief number three. What are his bottom three? The keep. Keep is his bottom one. Black hat. That's his third from the bottom. And uh Next to last is kinda interesting. But a big star's in it. Big star. Maybe the maybe the biggest at the time. Public enemies. No. Ali. Ali, gotcha. Um, what are his top three highest rated movies? Heat. Heat number one. Thief. Thief number two. Collateral. No, that's number five. Manhunter. That's number four. It's the, it's the Insider is number three. Oh, nice. Yeah. At number three at a 3.9. Thief is at a 4.0. Heat is at a 4.2. Wow. Uh, Manhunter is number four at a 3.8. Collateral number five at a 3.8. Last Mohegans is number six at 3.6. So big, big top six for him. Uh, what are the most appearances? I don't know if you can guess this. I said one of them briefly. He's a character actor who's been in three of his movies, and that's John Ortiz. But there's Tom a top, Noonan. He's been two, I believe. But there's one lead actor who's been in three movies of his. Lead actor that's been in. Yeah. He's lead in two of them, supporting in a third one. Um, Pacino. Not Pacino. Close. Uh, Jamie Foxx. Really? Jamie Foxx in Collateral, Miami Vice, and he is in Ali as one of Ali's uh, ringside, like one of, one of his assistant trainers. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, yeah. Uh on to rankings do you just want to hear my rankings because i have them sure <laughs> just just to, I, I did it that's the thing i did it we'll just do it and then you can go back and watch them if you want to thomas and tell me if i'm wrong all right let me go from the bottom up yeah at number 11 i have the keep dead last sounds about right number 10 i have black hat okay uh number nine i have ali okay number eight public enemies no surprises yet number seven here's where the surprise comes in manhunter Ooh, okay um, right, that's, that's the big low. difference yeah it's kind of low number six miami vice okay number five last of the mohicans number four collateral okay yeah, yeah number three number three the insider number two thief and number one heat all right that checks out that checks out just that that miami vice manhunter swap was yeah, just everyone, about, yeah. Everyone, yeah everyone's like what are you talking about um so final director questions uh is michael mann auteur thomas yes i think you can definitely turn on a michael mann movie and be like that's yes. a michael mann movie i didn't i mean yeah. i knew it was auteur like visually but thematically i was not expecting this this time yeah. as much as i was expecting or i thought um but yeah his he his he has a voice both in his writing and his visuals that's been there since thief mm -hmm. and may take, you take out the keep and everything kind of fits fairly well together. 
this kind yeah. of thing um so yeah what are his running themes speaking of that uh like you said professionals you know you're watching guys who are good at their jobs but but a lot of times you're watching the how that can ruin them you know a lot of other filmmakers are are, are not going to to show you how being good at something is going to ruin your life mm-hmm. but um obviously there's something about mentors there lots of lots of talk about about mentors and then and then duality um the the cops and robbers the two sides of the law and and, and you know it, it's with with thief being such a fully formed kind of thesis of his mm-hmm. from his first movie and then with heat being this just like pure unadulterated vision of his it makes it so easy to yeah. kind of pick out the things that that are in both of those movies that then show up in, in, in other things in his other movies yeah and and just this this both sides of the law being like so addicted to whatever the the chase is or whatever it is that yeah. they're chasing down that they'll sacrifice their lives and their and their families and yeah. and all of that to to keep it going is is really what it all boils down to i mean even throwing in the non-crime related, like an insider i think pacino's like that in the insider where he's fighting to get this story about uh jeffrey weingard on the air and he'll do whatever he can no matter kind of what it does to his reputation um, or even does the CBS or his job, he doesn't care because it's all about mm-hmm. what what's the right thing and what's the professional thing to do because he is a journalist and that's what journalists should do. They don't always do. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's all there in the crime movies and the non-crime movies. And that leads to the next question. What genres does man work with then? Crime. Crime. Neo-noir. I would say yeah. neo-noir. And I, I mean, I epic would you say epic in some way like i don't know if that's really a genre we can define as it's more of like it's the style is epic if that makes sense yeah. and not the genre is epic but it's also not that's that's the weird thing about him it's there are these huge things but then you know like we said with public enemies i i think last mohicans is the only one that really kind of like buys into like the legend yeah but as big as his movies are and as kind of sweeping as they are like we said a lot of them are about kind of demystifying a lot of this Mm -hmm. stuff it's it's epic but it's also not trying to create an epic yeah so final genre questions Mm -hmm. what are some other films that we didn't talk about this month that you want to bring up here i mean we did we did talk about american animals but that is that has been my favorite heist film of the last it's great however many years it's a really and and I try to describe it to people, and I feel like I'm underselling it. I, I yeah, make it sound yeah. like a, I make it sound like a, like a like a reenactment special or something. Yeah, but yeah. like the the way the film is done is is truly truly fascinating. And I and agree. from a filmmaking's perspective, it's paying a lot of homage to, uh, to other heist movies, which which Brandon yeah. actually made a reel of for for on social. So yeah. check that out. We keep saying we're gonna do an Ocean's Twelve episode, <laughs> and I feel like we have we we haven't yet. But very, if you're an Ocean's Eleven fan and you might not like Ocean's Twelve, revisit it. Yeah, revisit it's worth it. For- and anyone who wants to fight me about this, bring it. I don't care. I'll I'll go for it all. Ocean's Twelve worth discussing. And then I brought up. I I think I briefly brought up the Anderson tapes. But, you did. Uh, that, you did. That's one that's. If you like that kind of seventies heist style, you know, the original Italian job. Yeah. Like that that's a that's a really kind of stylish one you can check out. That's another one of those like 
plan everything out and then see how much can go wrong once yeah. you've put it into action. Exactly. Uh, one, a few I shout out, uh, speaking of 70s, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Mm -hmm. Fantastic heist film. Worth seeing. Uh, one I always suggest to people that's an older film, Odds Against Tomorrow, mm. with uh, Harry Belafonte and Robert Ryan. And basically, it's a all-time crook plans this heist with these two men. It's one's a, one's a black man, one's a white man. And Robert Ryan being the white man is a racist guy. And he doesn't like having to partner up with the with the with a black criminal who's a down as luck musician paid by Harry, Harry Belafonte, uh, directed by Robert Wise. Right before he goes off and does like Sound of Music, like a few <laughs> years before, very different, but very very worth the watch. Uh, what did you learn this month, Thomas? I think I like I said at the top of the episode, I I'm, I'm really surprised at how widely this this genre does vary. Like I think. When we come into it, I I had like Rafifi and Ocean's Eleven in mind. Yeah. And then I was just like, yeah, we'll figure out the rest. But um, <laughs> it's a, it's it, like you said, it's a very age old genre. And then one that has persisted probably more than a lot of the other kind of original genre. You know, like you said, The Great Train Robbery was a heist movie. And so it's literally been around since since the beginning of film. But yeah. um, it's I think in that it's persisted so much. We've had so many different decades of like commentary of, of heist films commenting on the heist films that came before them, that, that mm -hmm. tropes become things you can play with, become tropes again, become things you can play with again. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more intricate of a genre than I, I was ever expecting. No, yeah, I, I agree. And, and the kind of, I wasn't really expecting as we talked about before, it's like the, the interplay of the 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 law enforcement and criminal world as much mm -hmm. and also sometimes in some of these movies the way they portray like in thief it's that it's not always a glamorous job it's like a working man's job if that mm -hmm. makes sense like i taught this in the town with hunter where it's like they don't do that to be like big and famous or big and rich or whatever it's just a means to an end yeah. in a way it's just to stay uh afloat in certain ways or to have a, a comfortable lifestyle so yeah so that's all we have for on heist month and for michael mann i hope this has been a good journey for you as it has been for us next month we are doing contained movies and you're probably wondering what are contained movies thomas can you explain contained so movies? We, we started out with the idea of like movies that are set entirely in one room yeah that was containing ourselves even a little too much <laughs> But but we wanted to keep kind of to that same theme. So so yeah. the idea is a, is a movie that's that's it's it's kind of a one set movie. It's it's taking place in in one spot. It can be multiple rooms, but it's about the idea of kind of keeping the characters contained. And how does that? How do you tell a story in that way? And visually, how do you make a film interesting in that way? And and so yeah, we are talking about start off with we'll start one of the classics, Rear Window. And then we'll go into Mother, which will be a fun, fun <laughs> Not left. Not a classic. No. <laughs> will be a fun left turn. Uh, we'll also be doing Clue, I think, to end the month. And we have one one more that we're trying to to figure out for you. But that's what we're doing next month. Uh, there's a list on Letterbox on my Letterbox called um, uh, 12 Angry Men, a look at contained movies. So please go check that out. Uh, if you can and see which movies are your favorite and if we're missing any off our list or if we have one that you think's like hey that's not a contained movie go tell us before we start playing them doing the month um 
But yeah, so that's all we have for this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, uh, and wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us for whatever platform to listen to the show on. You know, guys, uh, don't 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 steal any of our, our <laughs> listens and keep them all for yourself. We're we're here we're here to we're here to spread the love and just you know you should you can spread the word yourself give us all the heat give us all the heat (laughs) (laughs) you know you know what they say never be too attached to something in 30 seconds that you couldn't just go online in 30 seconds and leave a review (laughs) for a podcast that's how long it takes we're reaching that's also how long it takes to leave your whole life behind you so you know (laughs) easier it's much easier to leave a review for a podcast and finally, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. As always, Thomas, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We have a listen more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.